Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Claire Chambers. Claire is the author of nine novels, including two for young adults. Her most recent, Small Pleasures, was longlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction and recently won the Page Turner of the Year at the 2022 British Book Awards. So welcome to our shelves, Claire. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. It's lovely to be here. Um, so the Virago Modern Classics, very famous list under the brilliant editorship of um, Donna Coonan, who was a guest on this podcast last season for regular listeners. They are currently reissuing nine of Barbara Pym's absolutely brilliant novels. And you have written the introduction to one of them, A Glass of Blessings. And I feel like Pym is one of those writers who is beloved by so many people, um, people who will, you know, talk about her until the cows come home about how much they love her but at the same time she still seems to be someone who is slightly underappreciated and so I'm thinking particularly for any listeners who haven't yet fallen under her spell could you tell us a little bit about what the appeal is for you um, more generally and also about A Glass of Blessings in particular please Claire. Yes I'd, I'd be delighted to um, rave about Barbara Pym. Um, she's, <laughs> she's just one of those writers who once you've been introduced to her work you immediately go and read absolutely everything else she's written because there's nobody else quite like her so you can't you can't go and find an alternative pym her mm. voice is absolutely unique I mean, people compare her to jane austen and uh, but that's not that doesn't really do she's she's much um much funnier i, I mean i love jane austen but but barbara pym is 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 more funny and she's more middle class and um she has sort of particular areas of interest like um anthropology and academia and uh, high Anglicanism, which are, are just sort of just delightfully uh, rendered by her and, and in this sort of a slightly mocking way. And she has a great line in um, underdogs, these sort of female characters who are sort of doormats in a world of boots, as mm. Jean Rhys would put it. Um, and every book is slightly different, but they all have this inimitable style and quality of, of just sharp observation and sort of uh, sometimes they're more playful than others and sometimes they're more dark and waspish but but there's always this really knowing voice it's not even an acquired taste you get into the taste within a paragraph really it, she, she's so wonderful I, I came across a, a line that she'd written that just made me laugh out loud she's talking about tea and she says a drink she did not much like because of the comfort it was said to bring to those whom she normally despised <laughs> She's so sharp, so sharp, isn't she? And so sharp under that layer. I think a lot of people still have this idea of her as somebody who writes about sort of, you know, tea parties with vicars, which she does, but it's kind of brilliantly told, right? There's a there's a, such a sharpness there. 
Yes, and I think people over-identify Barbara Pym with the sort of spinsterish blue stocking of her mm. books, and she wasn't like that at all. She was much more worldly and interested in fashion and men and uh, you know disastrous love affairs, and was was um, not not quite the character that she she sort of portrays in her books, which okay. just makes her more interesting, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I read um, Paula Byrne's recent biography of her with absolute interest. I had no idea about her sort of, well, A, her interest in Nazism to begin with, but also all her sort of affairs that she was having at a time when really this was not, this was still kind of looked down upon or kind of, it was shocked considered be considered shocking for a girl of her sort of class and stature to be having these sexual affairs with men right yes yes she was you know uh, it was it was frowned upon and made very awkward at university to be to be sort of sleeping around but she still managed it you know and uh, always kind of disastrously she she kept choosing people who were emotionally unavailable because they were either just um, commitment votes or they were married or they were gay or you know one one person after another she would she would sort of attach herself to and fall deeply in love with and they just wouldn't be able to reciprocate her feelings so it was a you know she she was not a good picker of men no not at all so tell us a little bit about um, a glass of blessings and is this a good place to start with Pim and what should people read this book in particular for it is it is a good place to start in the sense that it's one of her best so if you're going to you know, come at come at her. You may as well go in on 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 the high and see her at her best. And then, if you like her, you can read the rest. But it's not uh, an early one. It's, it's I think it's her at the sort of height of her brilliance, really. Mm. And it's not typical either because it's got this heroine Wilmot Forsyth, who is quite unlike a typical Pym heroine because she's rather successful. She's rather attractive, uh, middle class, quite well off quite complacent and she's rather like Jane Austen's Emma she she's mm. someone who's who's rather too comfortable and rather bored and so she gets involved in sort of interfering in people's affairs and matchmaking and with with sort of slightly disastrous outcomes but it's very funny and very moving and she she's just she just nails this whole sort of um milieu of of the bored housewife who mm. is is just wasted and underemployed and therefore starts to starts to sort of get involved in other people's affairs in a way that that is is not helpful um but it's it's very much like emma in that respect and it's very funny and you know it, it's got a really good plot a nice tight plot with sort of misunderstandings and the sort of comedy of misunderstandings is quite a typical pim um, mm. device and and she does that and the reader can see quite clearly why this this chap that she's pursuing for a sort of idle bit of romance is not interested in her and how it's going to play out but but the the character can't see it herself it's 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 wonderfully lightly done and it's full of one-liners and little observations about churchy people and uh, you know the, the, <laughs> she, she comes at it with an anthropologist's eye you know the, mm. the sort of rituals of the church and the way that the practice of religion is in many ways much more than its its spirit you know there's an awful lot of people worried about whether their cassock has been used by somebody else or um these petty little things that shouldn't really trouble people of people of the spirit yeah obviously do I'd never thought of it like that, but you're completely right. She does. She brings the kind of anthropologist's um, insight and precision of thinking about how people kind of, why people do things and how they do things to when she describes that sort of, you know, especially around the church, but also I think with small communities as well and how they work together and the interplay between various people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So every, every group of people is a sort of tribe 
to mm. which she brings her anthropologist sigh and dissects their funny little ways. Yeah, that's exactly it. And can I ask, how long have you been a long time fan of Pym's work? Is it something that you do you remember when you first read her? Yes, I I think I was in about my 30s, which I think is the perfect age for you know, being introduced to her. I don't think she's a, a teenage read at all. Um, I think you have to have a bit of disappointment under your belt to really identify with the with the PIM world. Um, and I think I was first given a copy of Excellent Women when I was about 30, and I absolutely loved it. And I immediately read everything else I could get my hands on, but out of order. I, I didn't kind of read them in the right order. And then when I was writing this introduction, I went back and read them chronologically so that I could sort of get a, a feel of her the, the way her writing changed. And it does have a sort of bell curve shape from her early, light, uh, funny, slightly f- slightly frivolous early books. And then you get this sort of, this real perfection of A Glass of Blessings and Excellent Women. And then it, her later books develop a very dark and uh, almost cruel and sort of waspish edge um and they're you know they're sort of more mature and richer maybe but those are the sort of three stages of pym i would say that's fascinating because i've always read her slightly out of order as well and never thought of of really thinking about how she progressed and i think i do personally prefer those sort of darker the sharper ones towards the end of her career a little bit more in my line but you know the early ones are just as just as glorious so there's something for everyone there and also your novel small um uh, small pleasures your your most recent novel you drew comparisons um well sorry not you uh, critics drew comparisons between your work and pims which i imagine as a pim fan must have been such wonderful praise to read right yeah i mean it was absolutely you know the, the, the nicest thing you could ever have said about my writing but I think it was perhaps generated more by the setting of, of the sort of 1950s suburbs than perhaps the you know the brilliance of the writing I you know, have to hand on heart say that may have may have been a factor don't do yourself down no 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 <laughs> no I mean I think I can see what you're saying there's definitely a setting that might be similar but no you shouldn't do yourself down as well I can imagine that that's a sort of for anyone who's a PIM fan I feel like that's almost like a career ending moment you want to just leave it there go yes, out on the high. <laughs> exactly exactly I'm very happy with that that comparison and, uh, uh, no not that I'm encouraging to do that I can't wait to see what you uh, what you write next um anyway well I hope uh, that gives our listeners a little bit of a uh, a taste of Pim if you haven't enjoyed already and and do look at these beautiful new editions that Virago have done they've got lovely new covers as well so I feel like anyone who likes good uh, beautiful books will be interested in having them on their shelves as well um let's move into our main questions now claire if we may first up i'm going to ask you to tell me about a book that is currently on your bedside table what have you chosen for us well i've chosen uh, the exhibitionist by charlotte mendelson um it's it's a really interesting book about uh, art and artists and the sort of clash of egos when you have more than one artist in a family. Um, it's about a sort of really monstrous male uh, painter who's experiencing a slump in his career and is trying to get it back on track by mounting this exhibition. And the whole family has to sort of rally round and contribute to this relaunching of, of him to try and sort of make something of his late career. And um, you know, there's, there's almost nothing more interesting than a dysfunctional family in meltdown. And this this book does sort of deliver that brilliantly. It's it's set over the course of just one weekend. 
So it, it almost has the structure of a play because it's it's set it's got a fairly you know consistent setting of, of the house of this the Hanrahan family where all this is going to take place apart from the exhibition itself, and then each of his wife and his um, and, and the three children of the family or stepchildren are also um, given a voice, and, and each each one of them has got some inconvenient secret or confession or. Uh, revelation that they sort of need to make which is going to throw a spanner into the works of this party and exhibition and so so she sort of the, the author sort of sets up this machine and sort of winds up the clockwork and then and then sets it going and you know there's only one way it can go which is badly you know and it's it's so delicious to watch it unfolding because the main character of the the, the uh, sort of patriarch of the family is such a monster that you can't wait for for whatever terrible thing is going to happen to him you you sort of you you know nothing bad could be bad enough for, for this man um so it, it's it's really enjoyable to read and i particularly i particularly like reading about unpleasant people I, th- I know a lot of people have a real real problem with novels where they, they the characters are not likable or they, they're not relatable because they're not nice and i think no it's really interesting to read about people who are really unpleasant and some of you know some of my favorite books and the most successful books are about, you know, deeply unpleasant people. You know, the, the secret history hardly has a nice character in it. And, you know, and uh, your notes on a scandal and they're all full of really unpleasant people. But but they're so interesting to read about. I wonder what it is that makes them so fascinating, because I completely agree with you. There's nothing more. I Personally, I find there's in a way nothing more dull than a very likable character unless they're rendered. But, you know, obviously there are always exceptions to the rule, but there's something immediately kind of satisfying and intriguing about someone who is a bit of a monster. Um, and you're right that Ray Hanrahan in this is is awful. But also there's kind of elements of awfulness to all the characters in different ways, I think. I, I found that quite lovely in and when I read this, that it wasn't just the kind of he's the baddie and everyone else is, you know, brilliant and kind of, you know, trying to cope. But I mean, they're all trying to cope with him, but they've all got these kind of horrific sort of elements to their character that makes you want to shake them and, you know, tell them to sort themselves out. Yes. I mean, you sort of feel for his wife because she's also an artist who's who's completely buried her own talents and career to try and massage his colossal ego. Mm. And, and it's you know her her dialogue is so interesting. She almost never gets to the end of a sentence in any of her dialogue. She's either interrupted by someone else, or she she just kind of hits this brick wall of kind of cognitive dissonance where where she's she she, she can't articulate the contradictions that are inherent in yeah. her existence because she's she's an artist who's working, but she's she's working to fail because the, the consequences of succeeding would be domestically so disastrous. She can't afford to do well at anything. So mm. it's it's just really it's makes very good reading, um, and it's it's a book that's, that I, I read and has sort of stayed with me, and I, the characters are sort of firmly in my mind, which doesn't often happen. I, I'm quite forgetful about things I read because I read them so fast, and you know, but <laughs> I, I, these are you know still with me, and I'm still kind of I'm still indignant at, at this this man's you know monstrous behaviour. Yeah, well, that's a very good, um, very good review for it, I think, in that sense. It was published earlier this year, wasn't it? So it's quite a recent book. Do you find yourself, do you read a lot of contemporary fiction? Are you, are you constantly sort of keeping up with what's being published or do you a bit of a magpie? Um, I'm, I'm a, you know, a bit ancient and modern. I do, I do read much more now of, of contemporary fiction. I try to keep up with things. And I'm also sent a lot of things now, which is nice. Mm. I mean, I wasn't sent this. I, I did actually buy this myself. But I'm occasionally sent new books, and, and that's yeah. nice. Um, but, yeah, I do I do read things that are um, 
contemporary, current, and that have got some attention or or people have drawn to my attention. But I also read, you know, Trollope and old, uh, you know, classics go back to the my old favourites and things like that as well. I sort of keep several things on the go at once. Yeah. Are you one of those readers who has a big pile of books that you're kind of dipping in and out of? Or do you like to finish something and then move on yeah. to something else? No, I always have about three things going at once. I have, a, I have an audio book and a, a book on my Kindle and a book, a, a hardback or paperback and a non-fiction book that, I've, that I'm using for research or just dipping into. So I, I always have more than one on the go. Brilliant. Next up, you're going to tell me about a current TV adaptation that you're enjoying, which I think is a is a kind of hot topic with many people at the moment. Tell me what this one is. Well, the current TV I'm enjoying or have just enjoyed is Conversations with Friends, the BBC adaptation of Sally Rooney's novel. I just sort of want to talk about it because I think, you know, she she's had a lot of attention lately that's sort of not really focused on the writing. But I also mm. really want to talk about the TV adaptation as as itself rather than as as a, a sort of Sally Rooney vehicle in a way. It's it's just a very interesting adaptation. It's it's got all the things I kind of like in, in a TV adaptation in that it's got an incredibly leisurely pace, yeah. which um which you wouldn't really be allowed if you didn't have a huge star like Sally Rooney as your kind of um, engine. Um, it's you know there are there are whole sort of scenes where where Francis, the main character, is just sort of on a bus or or walking around a house having a glass of water and, and nothing much happens. I mean, it, it nothing happens you know to a fault really all the, all the way through. It's it's splendidly. Um, Leisurely is, is the way I, I would put it. I, I don't mean that as a criticism. I, I enjoy the ultra-realism of not much happening. Um, there's a sort of moment where it, it's sort of like an anti-thriller where Francis is in the house of Melissa and Nick, who are the couple with whom she becomes, the older couple who with, with whom she becomes sort of entangled romantically and professionally. Um, and for some reason, she's left alone in downstairs while Melissa is having a bath upstairs and Nick hasn't come in yet. So there's a moment where she's got the house to herself. And you know, in a thriller um, or, or a normal kind of drama, this would be the opportunity where somebody prowls around and, and um, you know, comes upon some interesting thing or or is caught in the act of, of spying or, or there's some sort of um, moment that moves the plot on or, or is a sort of reveal, a big reveal. But nothing happens. She just sort of pokes around the house like you like you do in those situations but doesn't find anything and doesn't get caught out in her act of snooping it's a sort of anti-thriller device it's um and it, it the book is full of those sort of moments of ultra realistic nothing happening and I think it's I sort of salute the writer because the book is a first person narrative with Francis as the narrator and so we get to know her thoughts and feelings and, and her very analytical take on life quite quite intimately but that's the one thing that that tv just doesn't do it cannot do the inner life and the thoughts of a character without resorting to the dreaded voiceover which is always an absolute admission that this was a book and i have no idea how to convert book to screen and and i salute the author uh, the the scriptwriter for not going down the voiceover route and and just leaving it all to the actress alison oliver to try and deliver this great wealth of of uh, feeling that we never get to to know about just from from the emotions written on her face it's it's quite a big ask of an actress and i you know i salute her i think she's she's done a pretty good job with with that um, remit 
Yeah, I was watching it last week and I found, because um, I know a lot of people have complained about how slow it is and how long it is. And there are, I was amazed to find it was 12 episodes. I mean, which seems like a, when you think of, you know, how often adaptations are so condensed down into, and everyone complains there's not enough screen time to give this book 12 episodes, like you say, is because it's been such a phenomenon. But um, so little happens in it. But I found it completely mesmerizing at the same time I sort of couldn't stop watching it even though there were that you after a while you realize that you weren't waiting for those moments anymore because it wasn't going to give you these shock factor moments it was going to just remain very true to life um and I can't I don't know I can't work out there's something I really loved about it but I can also I think I can appreciate why some people found it a little bit too too leisurely let's put it that way Mm. yeah I think we've been we've just been used to having a certain amount of drama and conflict mm. you know within every every scene of any kind of tv drama and we're just not used to a sort of episodic um slice of life which has no real beginning or end or or plot arc or yeah. you know or anything that we're, we're given to expect um i mean even normal people had had a sort of um more more of a kind of meaty plot of of the the rise and fall of each character yes. in their their ascendancy and and the coming together and parting was was a sort of um arc of action um but this this is quite different from that and um you know but i i'm i'm i, I like you i found myself sort of hypnotized by the mm. by the rhythm of it and i think there is something to be admired like you say in that way of rendering um, reality so realistically on the screen right to capture that there is a real skill involved it might not be the most thrilling thing to then watch and it does throw up questions of like what do we want our art to do but at the same time I think the fact that you can do that is is demonstration of you know of talent in a particular way the acting talent the writing talent these things that go into it and, and it's a book that's very much about you know inarticulacy and so mm. it's very difficult to to write a a script that that honors the inarticulacy of the characters without you know somehow muting them because it, at least yeah. in the book we have Frances' thoughts so we know what she she was trying to say but utterly failed to whereas mm-hmm. in the in the drama all we have is her constant apologies for her lack of um yes sort of sort of uh, self-expression she prefaces almost every bit of dialogue with sorry sorry and yeah. uh it yeah. is a real sort of homage to the inarticulacy of the of the of the twenty year old sensitive uh, academic woman, mm, um, mm. and I I, I I sort of I enjoyed I enjoyed that, <laughs> that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah, and I think it also made me think a bit more broadly about what do we want from adaptations. Like, it's very interesting that sometimes an adaptation is. Um, hailed as being brilliant because it uh, cleaves so closely to the original and sometimes an adaptation is seen as brilliant because it departs entirely and does something new and creates this kind of new art and sort of new artwork from it Um, whereas this is very much the former but equally it's a piece of art that is very different to the original film but at the same time I think for me at least it captures the essence of that original right and that seems to be what you're saying as well yeah yes yes I think it's it's very um respectful of Sally Rooney's work and and tries to to sort of honor the flavor of it even though it's it's presented with this real sort of conundrum of how to get how to get this character of Frances across without her thoughts I mean you know that if we if we'd had voiceover it would have just really been like an audiobook with visuals and so I, yes. I'm I really like the fact they didn't use it at all 
at any point. There's nothing like voiceover to kill the mood sometimes. Mm, yeah. <laughs> often, not, not, I think a lot of the time, it's like, it's sort of the laziest thing you can do, I think, in a film is use voiceover. <laughs> yeah, I think it just, it just screams out, this was once a book. Yeah. Our shells will be back in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Claire Chambers about the lazy use of voiceover in films. Next up, Claire, can you tell me about a book that made you think about feminism in a new way? To say that it, it made me think about feminism in a new way is a bit of a stretch because, you know, almost nothing makes me think about anything in a new way because my, my brain's just so sluggish and uh, oh, no. <laughs> unable, <laughs> unable to get out of its tracks. But a book that certainly made me think about feminism and and many, many things besides was um, In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, which was the winner of the Rathbones Folio Prize um, last year. And it's it's an incredibly interesting book about uh, an abusive lesbian relationship it's it's a sort of memoir but it's completely genre defying um, because it's written in a a series of very short chapters um, in which the dream house is is describing the setting of where where this all took place a a sort of cabin in um, indiana i think where they they lived but it's also a kind of metaphor for the architecture of memory and it's it's a really very um, mannered and knowing and academic kind of treatise on the, the uh, an, an abusive relationship that hasn't got any precedence because she finds that there's no there's no kind of archival legitimacy for her experience because because uh, women on women abuse isn't a topic really it just there just isn't the literature to to give her the ex- the, the tools to explore her experience and make sense of it, which was why it was it was so um, traumatizing for her because she couldn't process it, it, you know. And so she's she's written this incredible memoir, and each chapter is told in the style of a particular genre or trope from literary criticism, which makes it sound unreadable, but it isn't. It's incredibly witty, <laughs> and it's almost like a, a parody of the academic style as well as being academic. Um, so you get the sort of the dream house as noir or picaresque or Mrs. Dalloway or the unreliable narrator. And they're all little vignettes from this relationship told in these different styles, um, which is it, it's just an incredibly clever and interesting way of doing it. And it's it's so analytical and the way of, way of processing sort of trauma is, is so clever and winning and brilliant. Um, and it also, she also references folklore. There are all these footnotes about how the, the, the tropes of folklore, you know, the um, breaking of the taboo, um, having to entertain strangers, asking for reasons for unreasonable actions and things, are all these, these tropes from folklore. And she, she's really good at, at just linking her experience to this, 
this sort of history of, of uh, writing. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's the, the book I'm that's really really stayed with me and made me think about female experience. I mean, I suppose feminism is is all about thinking about female experience and what it means. And and I suppose I when I read this book, it made me think that I I my experience of feminism was very narrow, limited to my own perspective. And reading this just kind of opened my eyes to a whole other area of experience that I hadn't really considered, hadn't crossed my mind as being a thing. And then that's always that's always a kind of moment of bringing yourself up short and thinking, I'm so ignorant. And, uh, that, you know, those moments are to be treasured where you think, I'm so, I, I know nothing, um, because then the, the book you're reading helps you to know more. Yeah, yeah, completely. I thought it was such a brilliant book, this, and I was really taken aback, I think, like you, that on paper like sort of in theory it shouldn't have worked or it sounds much more dull or much more academic or too um you know style over substance it just seems like it's going to be kind of you know too heavy to kind of get your head around and then when you read it it's incredibly gripping and each of those sort of vignettes that she puts together are just exceptionally readable really kind of thrilling and you're you're sort of racing through this book but at the same time you are well I think I like you I was brought up against ideas of you know thinking about things differently and having to consider different experience and I guess that's the point and like you said the point of the book as well that she wanted to create this sort of the beginning of this archive or this kind of you know consideration of what it was like to be in a relationship of female on female kind of abuse where she didn't have that you know she didn't have those kind of resources to fall back on when talking about her own experience or trying to you know uh, write about it right Mm. yeah and and it it also it's, it's unusually it's told in the second person so it's you yes. did this you did that so as well as it, it sort of divides the, the narrator into two there's the I who who um, is sort of writing it and the you to whom all these terrible things happened and mm. and, and uh, it sort of changed her personality um, but also it's it's kind of sucking the reader into being the you and it just makes you feel as though all these experiences are happening to you because she keeps saying you did this and you did that and yeah. this happened to you and so. You're, you're sort of drawn into it and there is that there is that kind of complicity when you're reading a memoir of of suffering and trauma that you're being entertained by essentially somebody else's bad luck mm. aren't you and so you you do feel a slight guilt that that you're enjoying so much reading about it um and I think that's that's part of the the sort of turning the tables on the reader that that you are the you as well yeah I hadn't considered that but you're right that sort of um the idea that I mean, you know, turning pain and trauma into sort of not entertainment exactly, but the idea that then we are the reader is in a pace of complicity, perhaps in 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 kind of you know involving themselves in this. But I also thought that it was very cleverly. It made me also consider that sort of shift between these different very short chapters written in these different um, in the style of the different genres made me also kind of think that this must be to a certain extent what living in that sort of abusive relationship that she describes is like, where you sort of feel constantly like the rug is being pulled out from under you. that You don't know if your partner is going to be nice to you today or, or, you know, be violent or abusive and something that, you know, was once. I don't know, something that you think is kind of, you know, happy and you're content and then they turn on a moment and start sort of shouting at you or, you know, and and that sense of genre being kind of pulled out and constantly replaced with another idea. I I love that because it made it it made it feel much more visceral to me, the experience that she was describing then. It's like every time she thought she'd understood what was happening because she'd understood it. Oh, this is this is a a road trip or this is a this is like film noir. It wasn't. It was suddenly something else. 
And there was a brilliant chapter called um, Choose Your Own Ending. It was like one of those mm. those sort of uh, books from from the sort of 1980s where you choose your own adventure path. But but of course, every path led to the same event. It led to inexplicably causing her partner to be enraged and and violent or whatever. So it had this ridiculous idea that you could choose you could choose the ending but of course you couldn't because which whatever you did you were going to you were going to end up causing offense you know without without meaning to yeah, um, yeah. And, and every chapter was like that this this new uh kind of trying to find some new way of, of understanding her experience and then mm. the next chapter she'd have to do it all over again god even just talking about it now makes me want to go back and read it again it was such a um such a sort of yeah such a visceral experience I think and, and made me think differently as well that's a brilliant choice after saying that you didn't have a kind of uh, a, an answer that made you think about feminism differently it sounds like you've just made a captivating argument for the fe- yeah. for that exact question <laughs> oh. and finally um you're going to tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire and I just have to in, kind of add here that we call this question our on the pedestal one and you're the first person whose answer has has um added this very interesting but you said this you said this was particularly tricky because pedestals are very unstable and I like that I think that's a very um very alert observation to make yeah I mean I think of recently that the spirit of the age seems to be rather in favor of toppling people off pedestals mm. than putting them on pedestals so I'm very uneasy about according anyone um a pedestal to stand on because they're such such rocky places um but that says let's say just a low use a low pedestal for this person then i mean i think (laughs) even even if you think that somebody's safely you know two centuries old still Mm. something can be uncovered about them that makes them not worthy of that pedestal so i think it's even more problematic to put a living person on one but that said if if one has to do that then i think someone who's already kind of been through the fire of of terrible experience and turned it into a mission to help other people then they are deserving of that and so the person that I'm sort of nominating for this dubious award of being put on a pedestal is um, a woman called Fiona Spargo Mass who um, has set up a charity called the Daniel Spargo Mabs Foundation to um, help young, young people to make safer choices around drugs and alcohol. Um, in 2014 her son Dan, who was 16, took MDMA at an illegal rave and died from that. And she has, from this terrible tragedy, you know, the the worst thing that can happen to a parent, really, she has um, just grown this um, incredible charity that that goes into schools, educates teachers and professionals to um, help young people make safer choices. And she's used her experience as a teacher to, to teach people and she's done everything so rationally from from evidence. She hasn't she hasn't done a sort of emotional thing of we must stop everyone doing this. We you know ch- children must just say no to it. And she she's she's looked at the evidence and what what actually works, what doesn't work, and has done everything on that basis. But she's she's incredibly wise, and um, her her TED talk is really really inspiring. I mean, I know we use the word inspiring. It has become sort of cheapened by the idea of celebrities who suddenly learned to dance a tango and we say oh, yeah. how inspiring but <laughs> you know she she is genuinely inspiring and uh has has just turned this terrible experience into an, an incredibly good you know um public service for other people and she talks about it so movingly and so intelligently and so 
you know, I think that she's someone who who deserves all all the sort of credit, um, and it's a very worthy worthy charity. Yeah, you're right. It's very rare, I think, to have the um, ability to do that to turn something so horrific into something so good, or to kind of help others and to put one's own. It's not, you know, it's acknowledging one's own pain and suffering, but to put it aside for a second and to think like, what can I do with this? Mm-hmm. How can I turn this into something more positive for the future? Um, which is not, you know, yeah, not something that everyone can do. Can I ask you how um, how you first came across her work? I, I, mean, I don't know her personally. I've never met her, but I taught, I didn't teach, sorry. I worked at the school where her son, Dan, was a student. And oh. so I was aware of him. I didn't teach him or have any personal relationship with him I was just an administrator at the school but obviously when when there is a trauma like that at a school Mm. it it affects the whole community very deeply Um, and so I've been aware of her her response to that and how this how this charity has grown and sort of flourished and it's um, they commissioned a play to be written based on Dan's life called I Love You Mum I Promise I Won't Die which was his last words to her as he gaily went off to his party oh my god Um, and this this play has been performed around the world, and it's now on the GCSE syllabus. And so it's it's had a, a you know an enormous effect on on that on a whole sort of generation of, of students um, mm. who've who've come to know Dan's story. Um, so that that's how I my my slight very slight connection with with um, this charity is very sort of tangential, but it's how I became aware of it, and you know can see the good that it's doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's wonderful. In that case, I encourage everyone to go and um, or listen to her TED talk and to you know look up some more information about this very uh, very worthy charity. Worthy sounds like the wrong word, doesn't it? In a sense, it sort of implies. <laughs> I mean that in the nicest possible yes. way. You know what I mean? We're talking about inspiration and worthiness. It's all. Gen- it's genuinely worthy. Yes, than just worthy in inverted <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny that you need to add those. You know, sort of. Uh, those descriptions to the to the beginning of this anyway um well I think that's a wonderful place to end thank you so much Claire this has been um it's been such a pleasure talking to you today your wonderful recommendations and I'm sure our listeners will have enjoyed them very much and say thank you for coming on the show thanks very much for having me it's been a pleasure to talk to you Well, thank you everyone else for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Claire Chambers. And tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. (laughs) 